0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another daily Bible reading snapshot podcast where we are finishing the book of Numbers this week in week number 10. And then we're starting the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of Scripture's most important books of the Bible. It's one of those books that Jesus quotes as much or more than any other book in the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy and the book of Psalms are the books that Jesus quotes the most. And we learn a lot about God and about God's people and his expectations for them. In that book. So, just a couple things about the book of Numbers before we wrap that book up. Moses gives final instructions about the land and who's supposed to be where. So, we see the boundaries of the land. We see a couple of important rules for cities of refuge and where the Levites are going to be staying while they live in the land. And then some rules about who ends up having the land allotments based on which tribes, based on problems of what if you have a daughter and no sons. That daughter is going to marry outside of your tribe. Well, that's a problem for your tribal allotment. So then you're supposed to only marry within your tribe if your father has no sons. So that's the end of the book of Numbers leading right in to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is called that because we take two words, we put them together. It's the word second and the word law. You even see in the word Deuteronomy, you almost see the word duet. That refers to how this is the second giving of the namas, the law. So this means that the Israelites have already received the law once, and that was at Mount Sinai. Now, this is 40 years later. The Israelites are going to receive it again. And you might say, why do they need the law again? Well, it's because it's not the same people. Some of the people survived and they were alive, but they were little kids when Mount Sinai was where the Israelites were staying. So remember, when we were studying the books of Exodus and Leviticus, we said, we're going to park at Mount Sinai, only spend one year there, but that covered the second half of the book of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. Now we're 40 years later, and we've got people that need to know God's word, and they need to hear it from Moses before he dies. So this is Moses's sermon. This is his last big sermon he preaches to the people of Israel about what it means to live in the land and to be successful, right? Because the goal is not just to enter the land. He almost takes that for granted that they'll enter the land. He tells these people, this is how you're going to have longevity in the land by serving God with your whole heart. And that's really what this book is about. He tells them not to forget all that God has done, but to remember that God is their savior and that God is their rule giver and he's their judge. And they need to fear him, walk in his ways, keep the commandments of God, observe what God has said to do the rules of God from the heart and really out of a love for God, which those two things in our thinking don't always go together, love and obedience, but they go together all over scripture. It reminds me of my daughter Eden, who's two years old, her favorite Bible verse right now. We've only taught her a couple, but one of the ones she often repeats, even sometimes when she's not supposed to, is this one from John 14, 15. And I thought you might want to hear it from her because it's a little bit cuter when she says it. Eden, what's John 14, 15? If she left me, you'll keep my commandments. Nice. Right there in the New Testament, Jesus basically summarizes what this book is all about. If you love God, you'll keep his commandments. And not in just some external way to avoid getting punishment, but you'll keep God's commandments from the heart, which is a major theme that we're going to be finding out right here in the book of Deuteronomy. God says, you got to be in this with your whole heart. Like, if you want to do what God says in the land and you're kind of half-hearted about it and you're not really serious about it, you're just going to do it to avoid some punishment just so things will be a little bit better for you, but you don't really want to obey God. If that's your attitude, then there's never going to be longevity for these Israelites in the land, which is a massive problem that we see played out later on in the the Old Testament. So, just some key things for you about this book. The book of Deuteronomy is quoted so often in the rest of the Bible because it was the the source of teaching that was most important for these Israelites, and even the rest of the Old Testament history books that follow, books like Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, sometimes those books are called Deuteronomic history because they're the history of Israel and chronicling How well did they keep and observe and do God's commandments from the heart? Like, did they obey the book of Deuteronomy or not? So that's why a lot of people have said, really, when you're reading those books, it's almost like you should have a copy of Deuteronomy open on one side of your desk and a copy of the book of Joshua or Samuel or Kings on the other side. You always have to be comparing because rarely in the text, in those other books, does the narrator pop in and tell you if something was good or bad. It just presents the facts as they are. And sometimes there's some moral statements, but the book of Deuteronomy is supposed to show you the moral guidelines for the people of Israel. So the book of Deuteronomy kind of stands in judgment over what the characters are doing in the book of Joshua, in the book of Judges, and the books of Samuel, and the book of Kings. Also, as you read, you might notice that the book of Deuteronomy kind of serves as like a constitution for this nation, right? It's a brand new people group, and they need a rule book, and they need some guidance, and this is going to be the thing that tells them who they are, what they're supposed to be doing, and it's not just a rule book. It's more than a rule book. It deals with the matters of these Israelites all the way down to their hearts. And while that's very personal, uh, scholars have noted that this book of Deuteronomy follows an ancient pattern of writing that was common back in those days. Scholars call them suzerain vassal treaties, and that's because there are some ancient Hittite treaties that really mirror the same structure as the book of Deuteronomy. Those kind of treaties were made when you had a king that would take a people group, would subjugate that people group to himself, and would tell them, hey, remember, I'm the boss, you're serving me, and here's the conditions of our agreement now. I'll be your lord, I'll provide for you, but you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z for me in order to be in good graces with me. And if you don't, then there's going to be these curses on you for disobeying. And if you do, if you're obedient, there's going to be blessings for obedience. Now, that's not exactly the same arrangement that God has with his people, but there is something we can learn about it. It was common for people to follow their deity or their king in a way where love and fear and obedience and blessings and curses all were wrapped up into one idea and even in one document. So, as we read this book, you're going to notice Moses is going to give a history of the people, especially the beginning. So the first really three or four chapters are history. He tells the Israelites, this is who you are. This is who your God is. This is who you are. You are his people. You're going to listen to him. You're going to obey him. And we don't want you to forget about all of God's victories that he's won for you people. So starting in chapter four, it gets pretty interesting. He tells these people, Hey, make sure that you are serious about keeping God's word. He says, uh, and this is in chapter four, verse six, he says, keep them and do them talking about the statutes and laws for they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord God, our God, is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That's Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8. The reason that's important is because that's what this document is. It's God's law for God's people for living in the land. What does it look like to be a good Israelite? What does it look like to be a good follower of God at this time? if you had memorized the book of Deuteronomy and you had been doing what the book of Deuteronomy says from the heart, well, then you'd be a good Israelite. Then moving on to chapter five, God's gonna repeat the 10 commandments that were given originally on Mount Sinai to the people. Now they're given to the people on the plains of Moab before they enter the land, because guess what? Those 10 commandments are gonna be the key. They're gonna be the 10 basic rules that are gonna help guide these Israelites on their day-to-day decisions in their life. And what do the Israelites do? They respond by saying, yes, we want to do this. Not only do we want to enter the land, but we want to follow you, God, with our whole hearts. And God responds in Deuteronomy 5:29. He says, oh, that they had a, such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God basically says, what a great attitude you have about this right now. I only wish that you'd always have such a great attitude as this. And as this is God speaking and maybe you know the rest of the story of the Israelites, there's a little bit of sadness in this verse because God, who is this eternal God who stands outside of time, he sees the disobedience of the Israelites just as clearly as he sees their commitment and their conviction to do what's right here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. That all leads to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is one of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible, and rightfully so because in chapter 6 verse 4, we find one of the cornerstone theological statements in all of the Bible. We see Jesus quote this as the greatest commandment. Uh, the, the Jewish people call this the Shema. It comes from the word uh, here in Hebrew, hear O Israel. That's the first lines, hear O Israel. And then the statement is, the Lord our God, so Yahweh our God, the Lord is one. That means there's one God. That means God is unity. That means there is not three gods. That means there's not 10 gods. There is only one God, and that one God is supreme. Now, what's our response to that one God? The next verse. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then the next verse rolls right into, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as front lips between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And he goes on to basically say, the Bible is the most important thing for you. God's word is what you need. And you don't just need it in a book. You need it on your heart. You need to follow God. You need to love God with your whole heart and pursue him with with really everything. In your life. And then later on, the same chapter, this is a famous chapter, in verse 14, he says, you shall not go after other gods. That was the problem that happened at Baal Peor. That's already happened in the Israelites' history, and it's going to happen even more. And God says, don't go after other gods. What other gods could they go after? Well, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. So just because you're going to the land doesn't mean that you have no accountability. right? God can still destroy and judge his people. He so often does. One of the problems is once you're in good graces with God, so many people often think, well, I know why I'm in good graces with God. It's because I'm a pretty good person because I'm a holy person. And as a nation, why does God love us? Is, yeah, he loves us. But like, it's probably because we deserve it, right? Well, God says, make sure you don't think that. In the next chapter, in chapter seven, verse six, he says, for you are a people, holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love and chose you for you were the fewest of all the people, but because the Lord, your God loves you and he's keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. So point is, why does God love you? Why has God accepted you? Why has God given you his rules? Is it because he thinks you'll do what they say? Is it because he thinks that you're a good person? That's not the reason God sets his love on people. God sets his love on people out of his free choice. And it's not because of our righteousness. It's not because of our lovability. And it's not because we're impressive to God. Even in the next chapter, God says in chapter eight, verse two, he says, remember, I humbled you. He says, remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing to know what was in your heart. Even notice that. The rest of the Old Testament and even Jesus develops that idea, but there's an external testing in your life to show what's going on in your heart, which proves the point. We see it in Proverbs 4. We see it in Jeremiah 17, 9. We see it in Matthew 15. The whole idea of what's going on in your heart will manifest itself in your life. So you want to know what's in someone's heart? Well, look at their life. And God says here, this was a test for you Israelites to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, right? Because remember, Jesus says, If you love God, if you love him, you're going to keep his commandments. He says back here in Deuteronomy 8, he says, And remember how he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You might think, did Jesus make that line up? He didn't make that up. He's quoting that from the book of Deuteronomy when he's tempted with bread in the New Testament. So very important for us to realize, look, we're not that different than the Israelites. God has done so much to save us. God has done so much to provide for us. And if you're one of God's people, don't think it's because you're better. Don't think it's because you're righteous. Have the humility to realize it's God's electing love that's been set on your life. And and that's why you're one of his people. And then what's your response? Well, it's to do what God says. It's to, out of that humility, seek to be an obedient person, not just obedient externally, but in your heart too. he says later, still in chapter 8, verse 17, he says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Again, God could not be more clear. You're not in this land. You're not rich. You're not powerful because you're rich and powerful. You're not getting it because you're good. You're getting it because I've allowed it to happen, and I gave you the power to do this. Uh, In chapter 9, he goes even further, back to the righteousness part. Chapter 9, verse 4, God says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust these people out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to take possession of the land. Whereas it is actually because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before that he might confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Okay, that was a lot, but how many themes just came together there? The idea of it's not because you're better and it's really because of their sin. God's judging, and he's saving at the same time, and he's keeping his promises. That's the reason why God does what he does. So what's our response? Well, chapter 10 says, hey, make sure that your heart is right with God too. He says, yeah, you could do a lot of good things out of a bad heart. Now, most people, frankly, won't do good things if their heart's bad. And he says, what you should do, you should be most concerned about circumcising, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Like, You guys need to get sensitive to God's rules. If you can hear God's rules over and over again and you're desensitized to that, that's a big problem. And these Israelites had that problem. And frankly, a lot of people that go to church have that problem. Even if you're acquainted, well acquainted with the scriptures. If you hear God's word and you don't really want to do it, and maybe you have some desire to do it, but you don't really desire in your heart to do it, let the book of Deuteronomy drive you to further obedience by seeking God with your whole heart. Then in the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, we'll read more later, but in chapter 11, we see that Israel's land is going to be different than Egypt. Egypt was dependent on the Nile overflowing every season, but that's not how irrigation would work in Israel. You might say, why does that matter? Well, it's because every year the land of Israel is completely dependent on rainfall. Like how much rain do they get? And can you control the weather? You, you can't make it rain. So he says, remember, you're completely dependent on me for every season. So this is not something where, you know, you can get into the land and then you don't need God for like seven years. Like, no, you need God every year if you wanna survive and if you wanna live. Then chapter 13, he says, you know, God's gonna test you sometimes by sending you false prophets and they might even entice you to serve other gods. But what should your response be? As a nation, their job was to put to death the people who did this. Even if it's your beloved wife or son or daughter or neighbor, he says, your eyes shall not pity and that was the rules for this nation. They were not supposed to put up with or tolerate people trying to get them to not serve God. This was really serious for these people of Israel because they were so easily persuaded to do that. Uh, then in chapters 15 and 16, the last part, we, we learn about how there shouldn't be injustice in the land. You should be able to administer justice well for the people that are living in this land, especially when we're all saying we're all God's people here, right? which is different than our world today. We don't live in the same society because the, the people in your country, whether you live in the United States or you live in some other country, like your people are not God's people in the same way that these people were God's people, right? So he says at the end there in chapter 16, he says, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. The point is that's right there is something that can be applied to every culture. You want to seek to do what is just according to what God's word says, not according to some human standard, not according to what the world calls justice, but according to what God's word says uh, righteousness is. So um, all that is in Deuteronomy chapter 1 to 16. We'll read more next week, but jumping over to the book of Mark, we're only reading three chapters here in the gospel of Mark, and so much of it is so similar to what we already read in Matthew 20 through 24. It's also going to be similar to what we're going to read in Luke 18 to 21, but it's interesting because both of those books have a lot of Extra information where Mark is the shortest, and almost everything that's found in this section is found also in those other gospels. But there's a couple things that aren't. And before I get into that, I just want to tell you as you read the gospel of Mark, sometimes it's really helpful to have some kind of harmony of the gospels. And what that means is I got a book right now on my desk that I'm looking at. It's written by uh, Robert Thomas and Stanley Gundry, and it's called The Harmony of the Gospels in the NASB. And this blue hardback book basically takes the Gospels and it splits it up and it puts it in different columns. So when something has parallel passages in the Gospels, you see it all three. So um, sometimes all three, sometimes all four. Um, Only a couple sections are found in all four Gospels. But this book's really great, it's good, because there's even some good essays at the end that are helpful if you're studying the Bible. But the reason I say this is helpful is because I went through this book uh, as I was studying for this, and I tried to find everything in this section that was unique to the Gospel of Mark. So there are a couple things here. In chapter 10, verse 46, we find out the name of this blind beggar who is healed near Jericho. His name is Bartimaeus. And we see that even uh, just that's what he's called. That's his name. But the other gospel writers don't tell you that. We find that out here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, then in chapter 11, verse 6, when the disciples go get the donkey for Jesus to ride, the Gospel of Mark includes the detail that the people gave him permission So they didn't steal it. And sometimes people read that and they think, oh, the disciples just stole a donkey from somebody. That's not what happened. They asked someone for the donkey and they said the Lord needs it. But the Gospel of Mark makes it very obvious that they gave him permission. Just interesting. There's little details in the Gospel of Mark that help us fill out the picture of what happened. Also in chapter 11, verse 11, we get details about how they lodged in Bethany since it was already late. That phrase is unique to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Then later in chapter 11, verse 16, we find out that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and that was when he was cleansing the temple. So it seems like these items for sale were being taken through the temple. Jesus directed them to walk a different way. So again, that's a piece of information that's only found here in the gospel of Mark. Then in chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, we actually get a two-verse section of teaching that is unique to Mark. Uh, It's right after he's giving the lesson about the fig tree. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses, which if you read that, you're like, well, that's similar to what I've heard elsewhere. That's totally true. It is similar, but that section is only found there in the gospel of Mark learning about prayer learning about how forgiveness is not something that's optional for us Christians. It's something that's required for Christians. Uh, Then, another interesting part that's unique to Mark, in chapter 12, verse 29, when Jesus quotes the Deuteronomy 6, 4, the the Shema, to the, the scribe who asked him about what's the greatest commandment, he actually quotes the beginning of the verse. We don't find that in any of the other Gospels. So what we see here is, uh, Matthew and Luke, when they recorded this, they just wrote down the punchline, but Mark gives a little bit more detail. He started by quoting the whole verse that leads into the greatest commandment. So that's interesting. Then also another uh, larger section that's unique to the gospel of Mark. And right at the end of that scene, chapter 12, verses 32 to 34, when the scribe who asked Jesus that question, he responds to Jesus's greatest commandment saying by saying, yeah, no, that's good. God does care more about the heart and obedience from the heart, even more than burnt offerings. And then Jesus says to that guy, you are not far from the kingdom. Now, we wouldn't know that from reading the Gospel of Matthew, but we get that here in the Gospel of Mark. So this Gospel should help fill out more of what's going on in this story. Um, and then also remember, just by the way, if a scribe is responding positively, sometimes we read this like negative lens of the scribes and Pharisees over everyone who is a scribe and Pharisee in the Bible. And now we have good reason to do that because Jesus oftentimes will say negative things about them, but it's not like every person in that group was bad and evil. Some of them were good. Some of them sought God. And we see here, remember, there's a big group of scribes and Pharisees that get saved in the book of Acts. I mean, the people who are becoming Christians, they're not all Gentiles. In fact, at the beginning, none of them are Gentiles. A lot of them are these scribes and Pharisees, and perhaps this guy became a real Christian at that point. We don't know. It doesn't say. Also in Mark 12, verses 41 and 42, when we get the scene about the widow putting in two small copper coins, Mark includes the detail that it all added up to only one cent. So that's important. And remember, Mark writes for the Roman audience, so sometimes he'll explain little bits and pieces of the story. Um, Another thing, in chapter 13, verse 10, in the section that we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark adds a line that's pretty important to understanding this, this scene. In Mark 13, verse 10, he includes the phrase, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. So he includes that in there. We don't see that in the same clarity in the other gospels. We see that alluded to, but it's put very clearly here in this section. Well, That's important because eschatology and those things can't start until the gospel is proclaimed to all the nations. And yet another reason why I don't think that section of Scripture is only talking about something that took place in our past. Seems like it's talking about the future too. And then last thing in this section that I could find at least that was unique to the gospel of Mark in chapter 13, verses 36 and 37, when Jesus is telling the parable of the master who's coming at an hour the servants don't expect, He includes the phrase at the end, this is verses 36 and 37, says, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The idea is you should be ready for Jesus to return and you should live like he's coming back soon. So those are, that was just a little unique look at all the different things that are unique to the gospel of Mark in this section. Remember, we'll be reading about Jesus entering Jerusalem, him doing the triumphal entry, answering questions in the temple, and getting ready to be crucified. That's what we're going to read about next week. But I hope that as you just think about those quick things, that you appreciate all that the Gospel of Mark offers to what we know about Jesus. And even more than just the Gospel of Mark, as we study the book of Deuteronomy this week, and that's probably where you'll spend the majority of your time, I just want you to be excited about all God's teaching you, and I want you to see the similarities of your Christian experience to what those Israelites had to do. We are Christians because we follow Jesus and we do what he says. And we don't just do what he says out of some impersonal religious force. We, we do what he says because we love him and we want to be obedient from the heart. So I hope the book of Deuteronomy encourages you to do that this week. Um, we'll see you back again next week, same time for another Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast. Whoa.